It has been an emotional week. It's been an emotional month. Wow. I was thinking about it. January has been such a month of loss for us. It's just been incredible. It just seems like it just keeps coming. I mean, three weeks ago, we lost Lenny. And uh, that was a devastating loss for all of us. And we're so glad that a lot of his family is here again this morning. And we're so glad that you chose to be here with us and uh, that this is a safe place for you to be. We're just thrilled about that. But uh, And just, you know, two weeks into trying to learn to live life without Lenny and preparing for the memorial service that was Friday night, uh, then Monday morning early, uh, we have someone we've known for years and has been in and out of our ministry relapse on meth and uh, in a psychotic state, uh, broke through a window upstairs barricaded himself in an office and set a fire. And um, he, at first he didn't even remember what he did, and then when he did remember it, it wasn't making any sense. It was just all of this hallucinations and, and psychotic understandings of what was going on in the room. But um, it kicked on the fire sprinkler, and then that flooded the entire top floor, and then rain down here. It was just like rain coming down. Fortunately, only in, that, in your part of the room, but not over here. The stage was spared. But the damage was amazing. For just, it was a relatively small fire, but it was just enough. And so the entire top floor is cleared out. We got uh, employees displaced over on the other side and everybody just scrambling and trying to figure out a way to do this. And we just held our breath and left the sound system alone all week long to dry out. And then uh, Saturday, yesterday, I came in here, fired it up, and it all worked. It was just like amazing. Only thing that didn't work was that light, and all it needed was another bulb and that TV because the the uh, jack is out upstairs. So we don't even know if the TV works yet. But hey, I can live with that. You know, it's all right. You know, but even so, you know, the 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 uh, devastation to this man's life that is going to happen because of this, the relapse, the effect on his family, the effect on all of us, uh, all the people that are affected by this, and all this in the run-up to, to Lenny's memorial service. And then, if that weren't enough, I had to hit 60 on top of it all. So I'm suffering the loss of my youth, you see. You know, it's like that. And it may sound silly, but, you know, it, it affects you sometimes. 40 and 50, I blew right by. This one, I was thinking, that sounds really old. You know? And so we've got all this loss. You know, I think what I'm coming to is to realize that we as a people are defined by our ability to handle the loss side of the equation. You know, we can all kind of motor through the good times, but what happens when you hit the loss? How do we handle the loss and so all this was building and, and the grief over Lenny and the, the craziness of trying to deal with this. I think I finally came to ground personally um, Friday afternoon as I finally just cut off everything else I was doing, all the details, and I was just sitting with my thoughts about how to approach Lenny's memorial. And it's in that quiet time that things become real. And, uh, and then you know, the, the grief started again, the, the, the welling up of that sense of loss that can sometimes get just obliterated in all the details of life. But then we hit the memorial service itself. And I've got to tell you, I have never laughed so much at a memorial service in my life. And you know, it's just, it's Lenny. 
Stories about Lenny are so funny. And people telling stories about Lenny and the laughter, it was a beautiful, cathartic um, beginning to healing for me. And I think it was for the family as well. Um, they got to see Lenny's life from all these different facets. You know, his AA group, his Al-Anon group, his Lowe's group, and his Effect group, and, and all the treatment center group, and then we got to hear from the family and see the pictures. It did everything that a memorial, memorial service is supposed to do, in the sense that it really connected people, and it gave us a sense of continuity, you know, that things don't just end. I'm convinced that nothing is ever really lost. It just changes form. But sometimes we can't see that change in form. And, of course, we grieve the form that we knew, the form that was familiar. But all of that run-up, everything that we were encountering up until that moment, it was just kind of this, this reminder, this breath, that everything is going to be okay, even if we can't see how. And then last night, we had uh, my birthday dinner, and uh, we went to a very nice restaurant, and the family was there, and especially our two older daughters, uh, one with her boyfriend and the other with her new fiancé. And I was just sitting back and just watching all the faces and realizing that because I'm as old as I am, <laughs> I get to see the sweep of this life and the sweep of this family, watch these, these babies grow up and now poised to have families of their own and have babies, and we can't wait for grandchildren, um, <laughs> babies of, our, you know, it's, it's amazing. Without the loss of my youth, I would miss all that. It took the loss of my youth to be able to sit at that table and have that sense of, of, of the passage of time, you know, and, and all these relationships moving in and out. And, and it's just an amazing thing. And, you know, without the loss of Lenny, without the loss of Lenny, we wouldn't have the startling reminder we had of how one life can touch so many people, that those ripples, that effect goes out. The people that Lenny has, has touched, it, it was a surprise to everybody because you know, everybody showed up. It was this huge, huge group of people. And that's just the surface. So many others have been touched by Lenny. And so it's through loss that we start to understand something about life. It's through loss that we start to understand something about why we're here and how this all works out. Now, to some of you, that might sound like a greeting card. I don't know, maybe a platitude, you know, and you're thinking, man, you don't know my loss and you don't know what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. And I don't want to trivialize anyone's loss. But at the same time, how we deal with that loss, where that loss brings us, the understanding that it gives us, is something we really have to consider. Now, I'm going to admit to you that I didn't come by this attitude just by stumbling across it. It was a long journey. And at times it was a really hard journey, a hard road of becoming and then unbecoming and then becoming again. And the whole thing for the last 25 years has often felt like two steps forward and a step back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. But even with all the starts and stops and fits and all the other things that go on, there has been kind of like one of those stock reports that's going up and down all the time, but the general trend is in somewhere. You know, I more and more have come to understand that loss is an essential part of life, that the descent before the ascent is absolutely essential to life. At the lowest part of my life, 
I realized that I had a choice to make. And the choice was simply whether to keep on breathing or not. And I don't know that I actually made the choice to keep on breathing, but at least I made the choice not to make the choice quite yet. You know? And I decided that I was going to embark and try to understand something that I, had escaped me up until that point some 25 years ago. And I just started searching and searching with a vengeance. And I am just OCD enough to pull that off. I mean, I was after it. You know, I was trying to find something that made sense, something that made my life make sense, something that made it worth to keep breathing, you know. And so I searched everywhere. I had grown up Catholic, so I started in the other direction. I started with Eastern mysticism and, the- and philosophy, and uh, I moved into the occult, you know, channeling and tarot cards. And, and I was trying to find anything that made sense out of life. Pyramidology, I remember that. That's a weird one, huh? Pyramidology. All the pyramid inches, I was studying all of that stuff, the Pyramid of Giza. Sounds kind of strange when I say it now, but it seemed important at the time. <laughs> Astral projection, yeah, lucid dreaming. I mean, I was into the... Then the Church of Religious Science, New Thought Movement, going into that. I spent a year in the Mormon Church because I met a friend who was so well put together and I just thought, man, if the church produces someone like that, let's check this out. And I found a great sense of community there. But it wasn't what I was looking for and I knew that. I spent lots of time up at Sarah Retreat with the Franciscans and uh, made great friends with a Franciscan there named Emery Tang who was a Chinese-American and came from such a completely different frame of reference that it just jarred me and and it repelled me at first. But there was something there that I wanted to find out about and so I kept after it. And he was telling me things about God that I never had understood before. You know, something about God's love and something about the way that this relationship works dynamically that I just never heard and couldn't quite accept, but I wanted to. It sounded so good. I just hoped it was real. And then there was a diocesan priest, Jim Fallon there, you know, who also became a, a mentor and a confidant and someone that I could go up to. So I practically lived up there in Malibu going back and forth and just booking a room and, and hanging out. And then I heard of the American Catholic Church, which is in schism with Rome because they allow their priests to marry and divorcees have full rights in the, within the church and all this cool stuff. And so I had to go check that out. <laughs> and I remember Father Erskine. You know, here I, I, I get an appointment with him and he doesn't know me from Adam. I just show up and he sits with me in his office and after hearing me pour out for about 20 or 30 minutes, he finally stops me and he says, how much time you got? I said, I got time. You want to take a ride? Sure. So he drives me out to Costa Mesa to this little Catholic bookstore called Paulus Press, and he just starts pointing at book covers, and I'm just picking every one up that he points to. So, you know, this is in the early 90s, and I walk out with a big box of books, or armful of books, you know, $150 or something, which back then was a lot of dough, you know. But I was introduced to people like Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen, Brennan Manning, that's kind of my holy trinity right there in, in terms of helping me to understand that there was a completely different way to look at life, to look at this relationship, this, this spiritual relationship that we have, to understand that this is a God of love and not law and the difference that that makes. And maybe most importantly, I got introduced to the contemplative way of life and what contemplative prayer and practice even meant. Merton, being a, a Trappist monk, was, was kind of the, you know, the vanguard of all that, trying to get the Western world to understand what contemplation was all about. And at the end of his life, trying to find a bridge between East and West, because he realized it's all the same thing in terms of the way that we move into this silence, 
the way we move into this center that is beneath all the crazy details and all the emotions that are continually pulling us back and forth. And I wanted to imitate him. Actually, I wanted to be Thomas Merton at one point. I, I just... I wanted to live like that. I wanted to understand like that. The things that I read in his autobiography and the things I read in his journals, you know, it's like I didn't understand it. It was like a foreign language, kind of like when I was hearing Emery Tang, and yet it was calling to me, and I knew that there was truth there. I just didn't know how to get at it. And so I turned my apartment into a little hermitage, you know. I cut off the television. I cut off the radio. I started a really disciplined um, routine, it's up at five every morning and, and running and praying and meditating and journaling. And I kept everything quiet in the apartment. And I was primarily working from home so I could do that. You know, the, I'd start working at eight o'clock and the phone would ring and I'd do what I needed to do and then it went silent again. And I had this constant awareness that there was a presence there. And I couldn't always get to it. I couldn't always feel it. But I knew it was there somehow. And over the years of just practicing that presence getting introduced to Brother Lawrence and his practice of presence started to change something in me that I didn't understand. I've told you all about my depression. I've told you about how it led me to the brink. And it was this process, this contemplative way, this moving into silence that started to show me a there out there that I hadn't seen before, a possibility of a different way of living life that I hadn't considered before. So I imitated Merton. That's, that's all I did. I just tried to do whatever I could. And it was in the midst of that, plus my study of Christian origins and the Hebrew roots of Christianity, that I finally met Jesus for the first time. All the years and all the study, and I finally met Jesus for the first time. A Jesus who spoke without contradiction. A Jesus who made perfect common sense and could lead me someplace I really wanted to go. And then I began to see Jesus in everyone and everything around me. That sense of, of connection, that sense of presence that permeated all the relationships and all the conversations started to kick in. And I started to realize the nature of Jesus' resurrection, how he was still alive, where he was still alive, how that made any difference to me at all on a day-to-day -day basis, all started to make sense to me. Jesus wasn't lost at Calvary. He changed form. And he's still here. Lenny's still here. You know, we change form. And if we are silent enough, and if we were willing to, to practice presence enough, we can attune ourselves to that unseen center, the connection that we're so looking for. Changed form, but just as present. I wanted to read a little passage Shameless plug, I have a new book coming out. <laughs> I wanted to read you a few paragraphs from that. Because as I was starting to understand this, certain things and, and metaphors and analogies started to make sense. Uh, this is called Stars Beneath Our Feet, this chapter. Road trip, Death Valley in February. One of the hottest and driest spots in the world. But arriving late at night around 11 at the tail end of winter, temperatures were only in the high 70s, with no moon and a dark sky. A large dune field lay just a few miles outside of the little town, and I really wanted to see the stars. Though no one lobbies or fights to protect them as they do tigers and rare tadpoles, stars are an endangered species too, at least in the city. 
So I drove out to the dunes and then walked out several hundred yards, sliding on the slip faces and watching for anything poisonous in the small circle the flashlight threw on the sand. I walked until the world was nothing but dunes and sky and the faint outline of ragged black mountains circling at a respectful distance. Sat down, turned out my light, and looked up. Cold sand, fine like talcum, warm air, waiting for eyes to adjust. In the city, it gets hard to remember what the night sky really looks like, what it's supposed to look like, what it looked like every night to our ancestors before the lights on the ground pushed back against the lights in the sky and prevailed. Partial constellations limping westward like multiple amputees. It's good to be reminded to sit under a sky that you forgot existed, that takes your breath away with sheer magnitude and number to see the hazy band of the plane of the galaxy itself angling through a star field so dense that you can only feel inconsequential in response. Watching the whole living sheet turning, all those specks above burning down on all the specks beneath, a few actually burning back, like me that night, making my pilgrimage deep into the Mojave to find the stars. And there, on my dune of choice, feeling closer to them. Why? Because I could see them? I suppose so. But the stars are all around me right now. I don't have to wait for nightfall or go somewhere remote with really dark sky to be in their presence. They didn't go anywhere at sunrise this morning. They were still there, burning away right where they were when the nearby star climbed into view, scattering its light through the air and turning black to gold and gold to light blue curtain down. The stars are still right there, and not just above my head. There are stars beneath my feet. It's just that this ball I'm standing on is in the way. Remove the ball, float freely in space, and see stars in every possible direction, equal density and distribution. There is no up or down or right or left, forward or back, just stars everywhere I look, disorienting, disturbing, What is it I really stand on if there are stars beneath my feet? It was moments like this that it started to crystallize for me. I started to understand what presence really was, what presence really meant, how permanent it is, how all-encompassing it is. And out of that, I started, I got three insights that I want to talk to you about. I would call them truths, but that's a little bit presumptuous. You'll need to decide whether they're truths for yourself or not. But for me, they become truths and they become, they've been an ordering of my life and the way that I go through and especially when I'm faced with loss. You know, we don't begin this first insight. We don't begin our journey from a place of emptiness. It feels like we do. It feels like we have a need inside. We have an empty spot inside and that our whole life is about going out and acquiring something that we don't have to bring in so that we can become complete. But what Jesus is telling us is It's the exact opposite. We start from a place of abundance. We start from a place of fullness. And our whole life, our spiritual journey, is not about acquisition. It's about stripping away everything that obscures the fact that everything we need and everything that can be had is already here, already right now. See, this isn't the way that I was taught as a young Catholic. I was taught about original sin. I was taught that each one of us was born into this world 
apart from God's blessing, apart from God's presence, apart from God's love. We inherited that sin from our forebears. John Calvin made an art of it with his idea of total depravity, that we were born completely depraved and there was nothing we can do to change that fact. And all of that tradition, Western Catholic tradition, Western Protestant tradition, is what we've got here and it's in there. And yet what Jesus is telling us is that the kingdom isn't out there someplace. You're not going to find it by opposition. You're not going to find it by observation, is what he said. The kingdom is within. It's among, it's in the midst, all at the same time. He's trying to show us something really, really important here. We think that we are separated from God and we need to do something in order to be reconnected. Jesus is saying the connection is already here. Just see life properly. Let go of the things that you're clinging on to that makes you feel separated and you realize that you never were. Not from God's point of view. In the wonderful story of the prodigal son, possibly my my favorite in all of the New Testament, at the end, when the prodigal comes back and the elder son is having a problem with the party, his father turns to him and what does he say? Son, don't you know? Don't you get it? Everything I have is yours. Everything I have has always been yours. There is nothing you can do to change that fact except not accept it. What part of everything didn't you understand? To diminish your brother's portion can't change the fact that you already have all there is to get. There's nothing more. It's everything. It's always there. We don't get that. We always think that we're on the short end of the stick. We always think that we've got to store things up because maybe we won't have anything tomorrow. But what Jesus is saying is there's a good news out there. And the good news is everything the Father has is already ours. It's already here. It's already now. He told us a story about workers who come early in the day, midday, and with an hour to go in the shift. And at the end, they all get paid the same. And just like the elder brother, the ones that worked all day, they're incensed. But the landowner just says, Can I be generous with what's mine? The point is, we all have everything. If we come into presence, we have everything and we start to know it for the first time. There is no acquiring. There's only a stripping away. Meister Eckhart said that the spiritual life is much more about subtraction than it is about addition. We have, there's things we can learn. There's techniques that can help us. But really, it's all about stripping away. It's all about letting go. The stars are already there. They're always there. The blue sky is only obscuring. The scattered light is only obscuring the fact of their existence right where they were. What you learn to do in the contemplative way of life is to set the sun of your own consciousness. Right? Our consciousness is like the sun. It just obliterates everything. It obliterates all of the unseen presence around us because it's so loud and it's so present. It's always directing our attention places. But if we can learn to set that sun, let it go down, and then the stars come back out. Presence comes back out. That's what the contemplative way of life allows you to do. We have to set that sun. The second insight God has always and forever made his choice for presence before the foundations of the world were set, before we were long ever born. God made a choice for presence, complete presence. Now it's our turn. 
What are we going to choose? Are we going to choose presence back? Are we going to choose to close that circuit, to make that connection? That's the question, isn't it? And that's the question that Jesus is asking and the prayer that he prays right before he goes to the cross. Take a look at John 17. It's in your bulletins and probably is going to end up on the screen at some point. That screen, because that one's not working. John 17, starting at verse 20. You know, nothing focuses the mind like a deadline, right? Jesus knows he's going to the cross. This prayer is so significant. If you read John 17 and you've got one of those red-letter Bibles, it's all red. It's just Jesus praying. And at that point, with that clarity, with that focus, what does he pray for? I do not ask on behalf of these alone. These are his followers that are present to him at the time. But for those who also believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, And I have made your name known to them, and they will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Starting to get his drift. (laughs) It's a prayer of unity. It's a prayer for the presence that makes unity possible. It's a prayer for us to start choosing the presence that has already been given to us since the foundation of the earth, the world, the universe. All we have to do is agree to be connected to what is already here. The Father's already made his choice. It's our turn. And what's this business about glory? The glory that the Father has given Jesus. The glory that he wants to give to us. When I was a young Catholic growing up, we had the Baltimore Catechism. Anybody remember the Baltimore Catechism? You know, and we used to recite it. You know, the nun would walk up and down the rows asking the question, and then we would all parrot the answer. And one of the questions was, why are we here? And the answer was, to glorify God. And we said it. What does it mean? I didn't know as a first grader. What does it mean to glorify God? Does that mean running around singing his praises all the time, running around telling him how great he is? Do we really think that God is that insecure, that he needs that kind of a reaffirmation all the time? It reminds me of that scene from Men in Black. Where they open the locker, you know. Oh, hey, okay. Oh, hey, okay. Okay, can you see? Remember that? Guess you had to be there. So is that glorifying God? You know, oh God, you're so great. We're singing these songs to you. You know, what is the way that we glorify? What does it mean to glorify? What is Jesus saying? Take a look at John 14, starting at verse 9. This is right after Peter and, uh, I'm sorry, Philip and Thomas are freaking out because Jesus said that he's leaving. And Philip says, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us, this unseen father that you're always talking about. And Jesus says, how long have you been with me? And you still don't get it, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also, and greater works than these, he will do. Because I go to the Father. What does it mean to glorify God? What's Jesus doing? Exactly what the Father does. You know, it said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Have you heard that one before? To glorify God is to reflect God in your life. That's what it means. To reflect all that he is, is to glorify. Jesus reflects everything that the Father is. You don't need to see the unseen Father. You can see him. You can see the way he relates. You can see the dynamic of his life. You can see the way that he approaches everybody. You can see the presence. If you were in Jesus' full presence, you would feel like you were the only person in the world. This is what he's trying to get across to us. The glory that the Father gave Jesus was the ability to do that. The glory that Jesus has given us is the ability to do exactly the same thing. That's why he says, if you follow my works, if you take this road, if you practice presence, it's not going to come naturally. You've got to practice it. You've got to want it. You've got to get up every morning and focus and learn to be aware, learn to be present. But when you do, you're glorifying God because God is presence. God is complete unity. And when we're reflecting that, we're glorifying him. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us, to learn to be present. We have been given this ability, and that was Brother Lawrence's genius. It's what he was able to do. He was the cook in his monastery, and he found eventually, through the years of practice, that God was just as present to him in the kitchen, and in fact more so than he was in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And eventually he quit all forms of prayer and spiritual direction and all that stuff except what the rule of his house obligated him to because he didn't need it anymore. He became like one of those desert critters that gets all the water they need from the food they eat. He just went through his day. He says, we think that we have to invent all these ways of coming at God, but it's not so. All we have to do is what we do every day naturally But we do it for the sake of God. We do it with the awareness of God's presence and it becomes prayer. It becomes a sacred act. The ground becomes holy. This is what he's trying to get across. This is what Jesus is really telling us. The third insight is that to be present is to be completely immersed. It's immersive. You can't just be a little bit present. Just like you can't be a little bit pregnant doesn't work. You're all in. And if you're going to be present, if you're really going to be present, then you're going to have to be present to the loss. You're going to have to be present to the pain. You're going to have to be present to the disturbance as much as you are present to the good things in life because you can't selectively choose. The shields are up or the shields are down. The window's open or the window's closed. And if you're going to open the window, if you're going to drop your shields, then you're going to get whatever comes in. And sometimes it hurts. When we let someone into our lives the way we let Lenny into our lives, when he's gone, it hurts. But what's the alternative? Never having had that relationship to begin with? 
We feel the pain and we don't ever want to feel that way again. But the defense that we mount, what we do to protect ourselves from feeling is also shelving us off from glorifying God. The ability to reflect perfect presence. It comes together. We can't separate the two. I was saying on Friday night at Lenny's memorial that Jesus told us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's counterintuitive for us, isn't it? We know what mourning is. We know what grief is. It's painful. It hurts. We don't want to go through that. And Jesus is saying we're blessed. Well, in the language that he spoke, the word for mourn means to wander, to be confused, to be in turmoil, to long for something so deeply that you're made weak by that longing. And to be comforted is to return from the wandering, to literally see the face of that for which you long. Why are you blessed when this is occurring? Because you had a real connection. In the relationship that created the loss, that created the mourning, you glorified God. You reflected God's unity to such a degree that when it was removed, it hurt. But here's the thing. You want to get to the comfort? Don't stop the mourning. The mourning is the point of connection. The mourning is the reflection of who God is. To stay connected, to stay immersed in presence, even in the midst of the pain, is what is proving to you that there is continuity in life. To stay present through the pain makes you realize that the connection itself is life. And the connection is the constant. The connection is the comfort. The connection takes us through and then life circles around and life begins again. It's the way it works. It's the only way that we're going to understand how we are loved and how we can love in return in a way that reflects who God is. This is what a moment like this, a month like this can teach us. All these crazy things that are happening, all these layers of loss piled on top of each other. Can we continue to be present to each other, to God's spirit through all that? Yeah, we can get angry. We're going to get angry. We can get depressed. We're going to get depressed. We can go back into denial and move through all those steps of grief. Bargain. But to be present to all of those steps as they are, whether it is anger or depression or anything in between, is part of the process too. It's part of what it means to be human. To be fully human is to feel deeply that whole rich mix, that tapestry of human emotion, and then get out to the other side and realize that nothing is ever lost. It only changes form. You know, if we can stay present, if we can stay connected, if we can stay one until life starts to circle back, if we can keep breathing, we will find ourselves eventually laughing at a memorial service or just sitting and marveling as our kids come and take their place at your birthday table and you realize it all belongs, it all connects, it all makes a certain kind of sense that we didn't see before. And then it doesn't hurt so bad. And you realize all of this is going to be seen again. We'll see Lenny again. You know, I don't know if I'll see 60 again, but we'll see Lenny again. 
I wanted to read you one last thing. This is a journal entry that I wrote just two months after Marion and I were married. She was at a retreat up in the mountains and I was left with our two daughters, one of them whom was about three and the other was about seven at the time. It was a tough weekend for me, trying to deal with a three-year-old. But on Sunday, May 22nd, 1994, at 6.20 a.m., the girls were asleep and I was sitting and journaling and I wrote, two months, happy 60-day anniversary. From the great perspective of two months, I can't help wondering how many anniversaries there will be and how long before I can balance all the pieces of my new life. Life has begun again. Life is two months old. Life will never be the same. Again and again. Almost ready to turn off the desk lamp. Last brave little star fighting to be seen through the lightning blue between the upper branches. Cold morning. Cold, dark apartment. Very quiet. Little girls asleep in the other room. Just like the first entry here with you asleep. Not 41 days old, but seven years now. A person. You are who you are. I know who that is. You'll reinforce it from here, modify it, but not fundamentally change. That's a good thing. You're a good person. The little star is gone now. Had to give up the fight against the big star coming up the other side of the sky, just starting to color the treetops. Light off. Cool blue cast over the pages now. So warm, knowing you're here with me, sleeping peacefully, trusting me supremely to keep you safe, allowing yourself through me to be a child, to defer growing up for a while longer because you can. Quarter to seven, time to shower, time to shave, time to wake you as slowly and gently as possible, time for stretching and dressing and donuts on the drive to church, time for the noise to begin, the day to rise up, roll over us, grow old, fade to evening and give us just enough time to gather enough strength to get up and watch the little star lose its fight once more in the coming glare. And just now, in my silence, looking for next words, feeling the weight of the emptiness of not knowing exactly what to say, feeling myself at the end of myself with nothing else to offer this page or anything or anyone else, I hear soft footsteps, bare footsteps in the carpet behind me, and I turn to you, stumbling toward me, eyes half closed, arms out. I gather you into my lap, warm, smooth, Hold tight, whisper in your ear. Groggy whispers back. Don't you see? This is life. I hold it in my arms. Precious, fleeting, unpredictable, untenable. It comes unbidden, stays as long as it desires, changes form without notice. When we think it's over, when we think there is nothing left, Soft footsteps come up from behind and flow warmly into our laps and breathe new words into empty pens, new thoughts into empty minds, new fire into cold hearts. The little star is not lost. It's still there, burning with the intensity of a thousand suns. It simply gave way for a time, a short time, to let us have day, warmth, variety, life, but it is still right there between the branches, between someone's branches as this ball turns. You are like this, Lord, burning brightly beyond the light blue veil, giving way to our daylight for a time while we live. I keep forgetting that you are here, that the veil is much closer than the sky, 
that I am not all there is, that when I am over, your soft footsteps will come and bring new life and words. If only I will pull you into my lap and hold you as though my life depended on it. Oh my God, my Lord, my life, thank you. Thank you for the tears on my cheeks. Thank you for my little girl sleeping again in my lap. For my littler one in the next room and my bigger one away in the mountains. Thank you for this cold, clear morning. For the doves sitting in the top branches of the lightning trees. Thank you for my pen. Thank you for reminding me of my life. You are the unexpected, Lord. You are the ultimate surprise that keeps us guessing, interested, and alive. Let's pray. Father, we can't help feeling the loss. We're going to miss Lenny, and we're going to miss so many things that we lose in life, but help us to see that it's not lost. Help us to understand that if we just practice presence and find you, beneath the veil that we're going to understand that everything is going to be all right, that everything circles back and becomes one in you, is resolved only in you. Thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for Lenny's life. Thank you for what we had that was so real with him. Help us to continue to put things back together as we move forward, to comfort each other, with the blessed assurance that you are always here and you will never leave or forsake us. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us in return. Help us to remember we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.